you're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Welcome, welcome back to the show, people. I am your host, Ahmed Munawar, and today we've got Zach Messler on the show. Had a great conversation with Zach Messler, as you'll see in just a minute. Zach's perspective on messaging is very interesting and very valuable because Zach comes out of the B2B product world. And in the product world, whenever you're selling a product, the temptation is always to focus on product features and product benefits. But that's still a long shot from what clients actually care about, what customers actually want and care about. They don't want features. They don't even want benefits. They want something else altogether. So Zach's done a really great job in the product world of being able to build that bridge from what the product actually does and, and what the benefits are to what customers and clients actually want. And so he's got a ton of really good perspectives on how to build that bridge. So you can start communicating in ways that actually get people to notice because you're conveying the things that they actually care about as opposed to simply what your product or your service does or represents. So lots to learn here from Zach Messler. Now, before we jump in, a couple of things. First of all, I've got a brand new training that I just released called Predictable Referrals. You know how most people generate their business through referral and word of mouth, and you're probably the same? Well, that's all fine and good. The problem with referrals is that they're not scalable and they're not predictable. You can't determine how many you get per month and how often you get them or the quality of them. You don't have very much control over that typically, and that's the challenge. It's great when you get them in, but when there's no control, you don't want to build your business around a channel that you cannot control. That's a very dangerous place to be. So referrals are great, but hard to make predictable, hard to make consistent. Well, I've got a brand new training around this that'll show you a step-by-step -step path that you can follow to make referrals more predictable so that you'll know exactly how many referrals you're going to get week in and week out, month in and month out. So if you want a copy of that training, go ahead and grab it at forecast.fm slash referrals. That's forecast.fm slash referrals, plural with an S at the end. Now let's jump into Q&A. We got a question here from Greg Rossner, a listener of the show. Greg, thanks for submitting your question. Let's have a listen and then we'll come back and give him an answer. Hey, Ahmad, how are you? So here's my question. Here's my name. I'm Greg Rosner. I'm the founder of a company called Pitch Kitchen, where we fix bad sales presentations. And that's in terms of story and design and structure. So my question really is about cost. So we don't put costs on our website of pitchkitchen.com. And that's for a reason, because it depends. But also, the value of what we offer depends on the value that it has on the business. So for example, helping a company clarify what their story is has huge value because words are free on websites, but if you use the wrong words, it costs businesses money. Customers go elsewhere. So the value is huge, but it's hard to quantify that. It's hard to help people understand what they're paying for. So any advice you have about how to frame what it costs to upgrade a sales presentation, to fix a website? How do we quantify the value of what we're offering? Where do we start in that quantification? Should we start with what our competitors charge? Should we say what it typically charges? Should we give them a bracket? Should we say nothing until we go out with them for dinner? 
So what is your advice on this? Thanks, Ahmad. I'm sure other people would enjoy your answer to this. All right. Fantastic question today from Greg Rossner. Greg, thanks so much for submitting your question to the show. We're going to break this down into two parts. Pricing is a big question. There's a lot that we could say about pricing, but I'm going to break down my answer to you in two parts. There's when to share a price and there's how to actually calculate a price. And let's go through those one by one. In terms of when, common question, you know, do I put it on my website? Do I let people know upfront what it's going to cost so I can qualify them? Do I wait until the end? Do I do it someplace in the middle? Common, common question. Well, here's how I want you to think about pricing in terms of when to share a price. If you walk into a doctor's office and the moment you walk in, the doctor says, here's your prescription. What runs through your mind? What are you, what are you thinking about that doctor? This person clearly doesn't have a clue what they're doing because they haven't asked me any questions. They haven't looked at my symptoms. They haven't sought to at all understand what I'm going through, what I'm feeling, how I'm feeling. And they're already prescribing me a solution. They've already diagnosed the problem without even doing any work. I don't know about you, but I'm going down the street to the next doctor because that guy's scary. <laughs> that's, that's pretty shady. I have very little confidence in that doctor. Well, that's how people feel when you quote them a price without understanding their situation, without understanding what's actually going on, what their actual problem is, what they're actually struggling with. Right? That's called malpractice when you prescribe a solution without diagnosing the problem. So in terms of sequence and when to share a price, the short answer is after you've diagnosed the problem and prescribed a solution. So the first step is diagnose the problem. What's actually going on, Mr. Client? What are you struggling with? What have you tried before? Why hasn't that worked? Why now? What are the other considerations around the problem that we have to factor into this? Diagnose the problem, then prescribe the solution. This is your proposal. Well, here's what we need to do. Here's the path. Here's how we're gonna go from problem to solution. Here's how we're going to overcome those challenges you're facing. Prescribe the solution. And then price becomes relevant. Then we can say, okay, well, to go down this path, to get you this solution, to solve this problem for you, now that we've understood where you are, how things are, what's going on, here's the price. Here's the investment. So providing cost and pricing upfront is out of sequence because you haven't diagnosed a problem. So all that does is it tells the buyer that, you know what, this person either doesn't know what they're talking about because they're pricing without diagnosing a problem, or they see us as just another client. They're assuming that we're just like every other client they've ever worked with, in which case we don't want to work with them because, you know, we know that we're unique and we're different. And I want to highlight here that this is what amateurs do. Amateurs will jump to price. The moment that a client asks for price, they'll say, oh, well, it's going to be this much. And all that does is tell the buyer that you don't really know what you're doing, because if you did, if you were a real professional, you would seek to diagnose before quoting a price. So that's the when. The short answer is once you've diagnosed the problem, prescribed a solution, then price becomes relevant. So again, in the medical example, which is a very useful example, I go into the doctor's office. He asks me some questions, maybe orders some tests, diagnoses the problem, prescribes a solution. Right. So there's some medication, there's some treatments I have to go through. And then when I get to the pharmacy, I get a price. But at that point, the price is is relevant because I actually know what problem it's going to solve for me. Before that, if the doctor walks in and says, well, it's going to cost you five hundred dollars for what nobody knows. Right. then that's not going to make any sense to you. Right. That only makes sense once problems diagnosed, solutions prescribed. And then I go and I get my medication. Then price makes sense. The same is true for you. So that's the when. 
side of it. How? How do we price? How do we quantify the value that we provide? And Greg rightfully identified that the value is going to be different for different clients. So how do we value? How do we quantify that? How do we price the value that we provide for clients? Well, the big shift here for most of you is focusing on outputs and not inputs. Inputs are your time, are your the hours that you put in, are the deliverables that you deliver. Nobody actually cares about those things. Clients do not want your inputs. And if they do want your inputs, I would run for the hills because that's not the kind of client you want to work with. They're likely the kind of client that wants to micromanage you, right? Make you clock in and clock out. They're looking at you as an extension of their staff, not what you want, right? You want to price based on output, actual value creation. What is the result the client can expect to achieve from working with you? What is the outcome they can expect to see? And then you want to price your services, price your solution in accordance with the value that you're going to create. Now, that's obviously a short answer. There's a lot more we could say about that, but that's probably the best we can do on this show. A couple of quick caveats. What if they ask for a price? When it makes sense in the sales conversation, you can share a price range before you get to a proposal just to make sure that we're, you know, we're in the right ballpark here, that there's no, you know, no big issues around qualifying the prospect. And we're not going to be way outside of their range. It does make sense in some cases at a certain stage in the conversation to provide a range. The exception to all of this is if you're selling a productized service where essentially clients are buying inputs, right? They're, 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 they see you as an extension of their team. You've got a productized service that is going to be a replacement for somebody on their team or will prevent them from having to hire somebody and add another person on their team. That's a different situation altogether. There you actually are selling inputs and it makes sense to share the price early on because ultimately it's a cost-saving kind of scenario. But aside from that, if you're not selling a productized service, then everything I just said is going to hold true for you. So Greg, hope that all makes sense. Any other questions about that, let me know. I'm happy to help. With that, let's get to today's featured interview with Mr. Zach Messler. Zach Messler, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. So give us a quick backstory. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What are you doing here? <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. You know, so I spent 20 years in product marketing for tech, for B2B tech. So what that largely means was I was a translator. I'm translating really complex ideas um, into things that are simple, simple enough that a quota carrying salesperson can pop, 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 get stuff right away, that a non-technical buying audience, executive buying audience is motivated to move, motivated to act. Got it. Okay. And you transitioned out of that into the work you're doing now, which is what? I am. So I'm, I am a messaging and positioning advisor. So I, I work with small businesses. I work with B2B tech companies and teach them what to say and how to say it so they can make a bigger impact on the world and their wallets. So I always love hearing the story of why you made that leap. Why'd you go from corporate to the work you're doing now? Oh, sure. So it's funny. So the, the last place I worked is, is I kind of found my voice, so to speak. So there were, a, there were a lot of old school kind of tactics and strategies in place. You know, the, a lot of the stuff that you hear from B school, like old, old B school stuff, the, the P's, the, the benefit, feature, benefit, feature, benefit. And I was being told to do things that I knew weren't right. And I knew weren't going to work. Um, and I was ready to leave. And so what I decided to do was, you know what, I know the right thing to do. I'm just going to do it. And then I'm not going to be afraid because I'm ready to leave. So if I get pushed out, I get pushed out. Great. So 
I started, I, I started doing things the way that I knew it would work and everything blew up and all of the, you have to do this, you have to do that disappeared. It was, it was phenomenal, built up amazing relationships with this, uh, growing sales team. And then it got to a point where I want to help more people. I love this stuff. I want to help more people. So I jumped. That's so interesting because I talk about the exact same thing in the context of consulting, <laughs> right? And folks who listen to the show will hear, will have heard me talk about this. A lot of folks show up in a consulting capacity as a, simply as an, as an order taker, right? As a Mr. Client, what would you like done? Mr. Client will say, well, we'd like this done. And they're just taking the order and they're following the steps and they're going through the motions. And those are the folks who see fee pressure. Those are the folks who get commoditized. Those are the folks who complain about competition. But it's when they do the things that you just described in different capacity, obviously, and they start showing up as a leader and doing the things that they know are going to be more effective because they know better. That's when they finally start commanding the respect that they were looking for and complaining about the lack thereof the entire time. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's almost it's almost counterintuitive. You think, oh, I have to do it this way. But, you know, we'll get to this foreshadowing. We'll get to this, I'm sure, a little later. But there, the, there's a question. This ties in beautifully to to how do you make communications compelling? And we'll get to that, I'm sure. But but I asked myself a specific question and it drove everything. And that was what's the worst thing that could happen if I do this? <laughs> what's the worst thing that happens? And, you know, it, it was never the worst thing is never that bad. Let's dig into that for a second. I love that question. What's the worst thing that can happen? So when you're in this position and, you know, you know better, you're being told to do certain things and, you know, those things don't work anymore in this particular context. Sounds to me like if I can put up my own words, you adopted the posture of, you know, the, the curious expert practitioner. And so, well, what if we do it a different way? And the worst that can happen from where I'm standing is you learn something, right? It doesn't go the way that you wanted it to. You learn something and then that, that improves your approach going forward, but eventually you figure it out. For right? sure. So if I'm hiring um, a marketing executive or hiring a consultant, do I want the guy who's, or the girl who's committed to figuring things out and is curious intellectually, or do I want the guy who follows a textbook they got in business school and just does things by the book? Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Obviously. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> The book, it's a it, oh man, we could go off on so many tangents. I mean, it's the thing about best practices, right? And you hear best practices in the consulting world all the time. Best practice, best practice. What's best practice? Best practice is a moment in time and things evolve. And if you're focused on best practices, then you're behind. <laughs> Best practices is the thing that freaking works for you, okay? <laughs> and right. because it's worked for somebody else right. in some other context does not mean it's going to work for you. 100%. <laughs> so, yeah, we can go on a lot of tangents here, but let's keep, let's keep pushing forward. So, right. so you're doing the work you're doing now, and, and I want to hear a little bit more about, about how you like the new environment. I know you've been about, about a year and a half on your own. You're, you're, fairly, you know, you're fairly new territory here and doing well. Right. But but fairly new yeah. territory. How, how are you finding it? It's it's much easier now than it was a year ago. Um, but I love it. I love it. And it's it's funny, like you hear about and you you watch or read about the whole idea of the freedom lifestyle. And I think it's a little glamorized. <laughs> right. It's it's super glamorized. Um, but 
you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I can do whatever I want. And that's a great thing. And I can do whatever I want. And for someone like me, you know, I'm a self-described creative and I have all these great ideas where it's like, oh, let's do this. Oh, what's that? Oh, hey. And if you don't hone it and you don't focus and have a, and and really be deliberate about what you do, then, man, it's it's almost like I was just explaining this to someone the other day. So in uh, X-Men, you have in X-Men, there's a guy, Cyclops, and Cyclops is blind and he has this power with his eyes and he wears a mask over his eyes and he can focus this beam wherever with this mask. But if you take that mask off, oh, you don't want to be anywhere near this guy because he's like, and and that was me six months ago. I'm like, boo, all over the place when you're deliberate and you focus it then it's, it's great to be able to do anything that you want to do. So tell me about that. So you, you sounds like you, what you're saying is you were a little bit scattered in the beginning as we all are. That's not, it's not common to you by any means. Right. But you found some focus and we talked a little bit offline about what you're doing now and, and, and the traction you're getting, which is fantastic. You found some focus. How did that come about? Was it something that was forced upon you? Did you just kind of wake up one morning and decide it needs to be this way? Like, what did that look like? It was, well, what happened was I had a couple months where I had zero dollars <laughs> and it was like, oh, that was the wake up call because the way that I was generating business was passive referral. So what I mean by that was I, I mean, if I do say so myself, I do good work. I had clients who were happy and most of them in the beginning were people that I knew that I had worked with before and they, they would send me business. And they just kept sending me business. And then that just kind of dried up. You know, I had one, one client that I'd worked with for a while, even, even freelancing before I left my, my corporate gig. Um, and it was a company that I used to work for and I knew the people really well. And there was a change in the person who controlled the budget. And that person I didn't know. And they came in from a new company and they had all their people. And all of a sudden, this one company that was probably, this wasn't a smart thing either, but probably about 75% of my revenue at that point, all of a sudden went to nothing. And the, at the same time, the passive referrals started to become fewer and further between. And that was the wake-up call. That was, okay, I got to fix this. I got to do something. I, I got to... You know, I was playing business instead of doing business. I have to be a little more methodical about this. And that's when I, I, you know, I, I got out of, we didn't talk about this too much, but I got out of the content creation business and started focusing more on, yeah, started focusing more on, on advisory and ways that I knew that I can make a huge impact and help people in a really big way. It's funny. Nobody thinks they're going to be that person who has that wheel of a client that just disappears overnight. And yet I hear the exact same story from pretty much everybody. <laughs> right? It's like this is happening in, uh, in, in at a higher frequency than you would imagine. And you might think you're safe because you got a good relationship and this and that. But to, to your point, well, that relationship may just disappear, might not be your fault. Somebody else gets replaced, the new decision maker, right? Your contact exactly moves right. on out of your control. Exactly right. Exactly right. So 
Zach, let's let's jump into our topic of the day, which is messaging. And I think you have a unique vantage point here on messaging, which you described earlier, where you were that that translator, right? Taking the product, taking the features, taking the benefits, and being able to translate that for a couple of audiences. First of all, the salespeople who just need to be able to say the right things on the phone and not mince words and not waste time. And for their buyers to be able to immediately understand what they were saying, even though the buyer might not be technically inclined or might not appreciate all the nuances and the brilliance of your product. So for you, I know you believe clarity is really important. Being able to get to the point and be understood is so, so important. But help us understand the bigger picture here. For those who maybe are not that deliberate about their messaging, don't put too much thought into it. Make the case for why we just need to be so damn clear. Because it's not about us anymore. That's why. It's about our audience. And you might think that your product, your offering, your service is killer, is amazing. Everybody should want it. But nobody gives a crap about your service. Nobody gives a crap about your product. Nobody cares about your awards or your, you know, your testimonials or any of that stuff. And so if you can't connect with that audience quickly – especially in today's world, quickly, then, then you lose them. And so clarity is incredibly important because of that need to be pop, pop, pop quick. Because if you don't have me immediately, then I'm gone. You got to grab me immediately. So the way that I look at this is, and I'm, I, I know we'll, we'll get into each of these things, but being perfectly understood is about three things. It's about being clear, so being understood, do the, does my audience understand my message? Being compelling, does my message grab my audience and hold on to them? Does it grab attention and hold on to it? And convincing, does it move someone to act? Does it move my audience to do what I want them to do? Whether it's clicking this button or buying my service or whatever. Clear, compelling, convincing. You need those three things. Okay, let's dive into each one. So, so clear. Tell me about clear. What what, what makes the message clear? So clear is is it understood? What is the point that you're trying to get across? And is it understood by your target audience? And so clear to me is about clarity, but there's also a layer of of audience. You know, obviously a layer of audience in there. Um, so what I do to to find clarity and this. This goes back to my product marketing days, you know, messaging for, for tech. I'm not a technical guy at all. And so I had to explain crazy technical stuff and I'm not technical. How do I do that? So I, I started answering three questions. Um, and those three questions, well, the first one is what is it? What does it do? Is the second one. And the third one is why does it matter? Why does it matter to my audience, whoever they may be? So for example, why does it matter to a salesperson may be very different than why it matters to, you know, a, a chief procurement officer, which may be different than a chief operating officer or CEO or a VP of marketing. These are different personas, different buyers. They have different cares, different interests, different needs. So why it matters is super, super important. All this stuff is nuanced though. So when I say what, this is so simple, but it's not necessarily easy, right? So if I say, what is it, right? So I have used this example before. What this, I drink a lot of seltzer. What is this? It's a glass, right? But really, what is it? It's a 
It's a cylindrical glass container. That's really what it is without a top. It's a cylindrical glass container. That's what it is. What does it do? It holds liquid. Why does it matter? Well, when you're on a podcast and you still want to drink, you don't want to be rude by taking a bottle and, you know, drinking out of the bottle. So you pour it into a glass. It's civilized. It put ice in it, keeps it cold. It's perfect. That's why. You, you mean like I just did? <laughs> I think you might have hit mute or something because I lost your audio there. Oh, no. No worries. No worries. Keep going. Roll with the punches. You hear me? We got you now. <laughs> okay. So, so you're more you're more environmentally responsible than I am, clearly. <laughs> but, um, yep. Yeah, so it's and it's it's nuanced like that. So where what it is is quite literally what is it? What is what it is? What it does is quite literally what it does. So for something complex, that's hard to do, and and for anybody when you're explaining something. Usually what happens, especially if you're passionate about your product, your service, your offer, you get into the weeds really quickly and you're talking 800 miles an hour or even in written form, you're writing details that people don't care about up front. And so what this does is it pulls things up to the essence. The essence of what you have, what you're trying to explain is the most important thing. The challenge I find that people really have with this, Zach, is especially our listeners here, they're experts, they're consultants, they're service providers, they're really good at what they do, and they're way too damn close to their solution. Mm -hmm. So they have, you know, what they call the curse of knowledge, right? They don't remember what it's like to not know these things, and then therefore the way they describe them presume knowledge, and presume understanding, which your buyer by definition does not have, because if they did, they wouldn't need your service. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. And that's why the why it matters is so important. It's it's becoming your audience. It's understanding why this might be of value to my audience. So whereas what is it and what does it do should be always pop, 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 pop. Why it matters is more flowery. Why it matters is getting into, okay, I'm going to look through the lens of this person. Why do I care about this thing? I know what it is and I know what it does. Why do I care about this thing? Why does it matter? And when you have this, this is never something that you take and pop up on a website or pop into a sales presentation or even use on a phone call with a pitch. That's not what this is. This is laying that foundation so that you can do those things. Because if you know something at its, at its most basic element, then you can riff because you know it. Mm. How important is persona analysis, especially in a context, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where you have multiple buyer personas in an organization? How much of this needs to be applied to individual buyer personas? If, so if you have it, you absolutely apply it. A hundred percent. If you have it, if you don't have it, you can do basic persona research. It doesn't have to be so it doesn't have to be so crazy deep, but it's it's just being able to look at the world from those lenses and, and be believable, right? And and how do you do that? Well, if you're selling into an audience, you should know that audience. Yeah. Common mistake I see here again is well, I sell to, you know, financial services firms as an example. Okay, well, who are they? <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a CEO, there's a CFO, there's a COO, and each of them care about different things. So 
you're not selling to some faceless corporation. What, who you're selling to is individual buyers within oh, the organization. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. People lose sight of that. Right. And especially in B2B, you know, for a while on social, you saw this is a few years ago. You probably still creeping around. Oh, there's no B to C and there's no B to B. It's only human to human. Like, <laughs> whatever. But there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. You're not selling to that that financial services firm. You're selling to a person. And and somebody in that particular role, sure, you can generalize and and you can get to a point where you you understand, okay, I'm selling to the COO, so I know what that person's like. Okay. But knowing knowing what moves them, not just from a professional standpoint, but from a personal standpoint is so, so key because people don't buy on facts. Everybody thinks people buy on ROI and people buy on, on rational for rational reasons. They, they do not. They, they make a decision based on emotion and then they back it up after the facts. The facts is meant to disqualify that emotion. And if they, the emotion is strong enough, then the facts don't matter. People will make a decision even when the facts show there's no way we should do this. No, no, we should because, and you just make up reasons. People buy on emotion. And so if you're not connecting, if you're connecting with the financial services firm, well then, yeah, you're connecting on ROI, then you lost. Yeah. If you if you come to me with an ROI message before I even recognize that I have a problem, all of a sudden you're uh, this this is change. Change is not good. I don't want change. Why are you telling me this? Yeah. No. 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 It's <laughs> I sound like a broken record with my clients. I'm sure. Uh, but the thing I always try to remind them of is buyers only do that which is in their best interests, and that's not always. What's in the best interests of the organization? Yes. Yes. A hundred times out of a hundred. So Zach Messler sells into B2B tech companies, and that's great. And Zach Messler can, you know, improve your your revenue and your messaging, your positioning and all that kind of stuff. But I will bet you, Mr. Zach Messler, that your buyers, if they're CEOs, I'll bet you one of the big reasons they buy is that when their product takes off and their market share goes up, they look really good in front of their investors, don't they? Oh, 100%. 100%. Well, then, and the other reason that people buy, too, has has less to do even with the audience than it does with you. And that's people that buy from me, typically, I've, I've been in a live meeting with them. I love this stuff. I get excited about this stuff. I start going, and oh, this is amazing. And I've seen, I've, I've seen things shift from, I have absolutely, knowing going in, I have, I have very little chance here to, uh, we have a presentation and then we shake hands and we're moving forward because, because of how I'm approaching things and the excitement that I bring and the expertise and the knowledge that I bring that rubs off. That's really interesting. And I'm going to tell you a similar story from a different perspective. I had a call with a client um, who recently joined my coaching program. And when we started off the call, I didn't know she was a good fit and she didn't think she was a good fit. Neither of us thought that the other that, that she was a good fit to join my program. And we started it that way. And I said, listen, I'm not 100 percent sure about you, 
um, for these reasons, you know, the role she was in, yada, yada, yada. And she said, look, I don't really think we're a good fit either, but let's just talk for a few minutes. And we talked. And as we talked, she got progressively more and more excited. And I began to see that, you know what, she actually is a really good fit. And she began to see, oh, you know what, I actually am a really good fit. End of the, end of the conversation, she's now a paying client. Yeah. And yeah. I think people underestimate, to your point, how important those emotions are. They might not be there on the first conversation. That doesn't mean that you can't stir them up. 100%. Man, I've said 100%. We're in violent agreement here. I feel like I'm saying 100%. Yes. <laughs> this is no fun. We need to find the point of disagreement. No, it is fun. So, okay. So, Zach, we got to be clear. Got it. Got to be yes. clear. Got to understand who we're talking to. Do that persona analysis. Make sure it's really clear why the heck this thing matters and what it is. Compelling. Tell us about that. So, especially today. There's so much noise out there. If you move forward with the stuff that you traditionally have thought is right, you're, you're wrong. It's noise. You know, if you're starting off with stuff that's all about you, it's noise. Nobody cares. If you're talking about things and haven't done your audience research and you don't know what people care about and you're throwing stuff out there, it's wrong. Nobody cares. For something to be compelling, it has to it has to be different. It has to be – you have to have some intrigue in there or holy crap, I can't believe they did that or there has to be something that's different from other things. And if you don't do that, you're not going to stand out. There's no, there's no room for error here. There, there's millions of stuff coming, you know, millions of pieces, millions of messages, millions of things coming out every single second. Only way to stand out, only way to, to be compelling is to stand out. Unfortunately, we agree again. Um, <laughs> a couple of, couple of examples come to mind here. I went on a rant recently on LinkedIn because um, uh, I'm just really annoyed by all the stuff out there where people are posting like video clips from 80s movies and like <laughs> this thing about this guy skating on thin ice in Sweden, right? And like some dude hugging an alligator. And like, it's not your stuff. It's not your idea, but you're sharing it because it's, people think it's interesting, right? And anyhow, that's another rant. But, but the thing is, why does that stuff work? Because it's, it's unbelievable. Like, how is he skating on ice that's only like, you know, a couple of centimeters thick? And how is he hugging an alligator? And how is she fishing with bare hands? Those are real examples, right, of stuff that I've been seeing on LinkedIn. It's fascinating, right? And the thing that I, th I think people um, fail to recognize, and I want your thoughts on this, is that's who you're competing with. That's right. Uh, that's right. A hundred percent. That's right. That's exactly who you're competing with. And so you think about that stuff. And again, I agree. Sharing that stuff is is harmful to your brand. I think people don't recognize that just because you it's not your stuff, just because you're liking something doesn't mean that it's not going to harm your brand. There's stuff I see on LinkedIn all the time. I get tagged on stuff. Um, you know, memes, the the motivational memes, all that. I get tagged on a ton of stuff. I don't even when I'm tagged, I don't like that stuff because that's not my brand. That's not what I want to be known for. And if I start 
if I start supporting that sort of thing, that's what I'm known for. If I start sharing these videos of people skating on wet or thin ice, um, then, then that's what I'm known for. I don't want to be known for that. And yet this is the jungle of ideas that we're competing with for attention. So that's absolutely right. And so how do you compete with that sort of thing? Right. So I've, I've said before being, you have to be more creative. But it's not really true. You don't have to be more creative. You have to take more risks. That's what it's about. It's about being compelling is about taking calculated gambles and calculated risks. And so it's it's asking two questions and kind of in tandem. Um, this is the one that that I mentioned earlier. The first question is, what's the worst thing that could happen if I put something out there that's controversial? What's the worst thing that could happen now? There are things out there. There are things that if that are controversial, that if you put them out there, you're done, a hundred percent. There's that word again. Um, there are things that you put out there that that you know are so controversial that if you put them out there, you're done. But you know what those are already, and so don't go down that path. But outside of that, you can try anything once, anything once. Because if it bombs, what's the worst thing that happens? Nothing. Or the worst thing that happens is you have to send a note out to your subscribers, to your on your LinkedIn feed, on your website. Send something out with, hey, I wanted to try something. It didn't work. I'm so sorry. Okay. That's not so bad. So that's and, the first question. And again, to that point, we talked about this earlier trying things and taking risks and being a little bit more adventurous with your ideas. Well, that's the kind of thing that people want to see in, a, in somebody that they want to work with, especially in a consulting capacity. I don't, again, I don't want to see the guy. I don't want to work with the guy who's by the book. Here are the best practices. Therefore, we're going to do X and Y and Z. I want to work with the guy who has the gonads, right? To go out and to put some, potentially contrarian, potentially controversial ideas out into the world and observe how people react and how the market reacts and the results that are gotten and then adjust accordingly. Because that's the guy or the girl at the forefront. That's a leader, not a follower. And I'd rather work with a leader. Yes. Yes. There's a reason why there's a reason why this stuff works. There's a reason. So that first question is, what's the worst thing that could happen? So it becomes a mindset thing, right? So this is how you get to it. What's the worst thing that could happen? And list it out. What's the worst thing? <laughs> and list it out. And then after what's the worst thing? List out what's the best thing that could happen. And no holds barred, right? What's the best thing that could happen? If this thing takes off and it works, what's the result going to be? How mm. How's that going to how can that support my business? How can that support my practice? What's it going to mean to my lead generation? What's it going to mean to building my community? Because then you get yourself set in the positive what ifs instead of the negative what ifs. The negative what ifs stop everybody, myself included. The negative what ifs will stop you in your tracks. It's that whole sense of fight or flight. And so you shift it, shift the game, show that the, what's the worst thing that could happen by putting something controversial or, you know, is putting something different out there, whatever different may be for your market. 
What's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, I see it's really not that bad. But what's the best thing that could happen? Holy crap, that's amazing. So then when you balance it in your brain, you're shifting to what's the best thing that could happen. And all of a sudden it goes from, "Uh, I don't feel really comfortable doing this to, oh my gosh, I have to do this. And in in the context of this conversation, we're talking about this is not limited to, but the examples we're sharing of LinkedIn and content creation and putting your ideas out in the marketplace. I hope folks understand there's very little downside to that. Like you're not you're not going to get flogged, right? <laughs> like that's right. Like what the worst that can happen is people don't engage with the idea and doesn't get much exposure. You're not going to die, <laughs> right? That's right. That's and, right. And and one of the things that I hear with this approach a lot when, when when I talk about this with clients, one of the worries is, oh, I'm I'm going to lose I'm going to lose leads or I'm going to lose people um, from engaging with my business. If you're putting something out there that is right for your brand, even if it's controversial and it's right for your brand and it's right for you, you're not losing anything. You're, you're gaining the right audience. You're honing your audience down. You're, you're the people that don't buy into that stuff and aren't going to buy from you because you put something controversial out there. weren't going to buy from you anyway. Another example, if I may, please. (laughs) So, I'm very critical of traditional sales advice. Very critical. Big part of that has to do with the fact that my audience is not professional salespeople. I don't, that's not who I serve. They're not my people. I serve consultants and experts and advisors. And my view is a lot of what traditional salespeople, professional salespeople do during the sales process as an expert, you absolutely should not do. Not only is it ineffective, it's actually harmful to your positioning as an expert. And when I talk about these things, I get resistance from guess who? Professional salespeople. Say, so, well, no, you got to follow up and you got to do this. And you got to keep knocking on doors and you got a cold call and you got yada, 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 yada. And I'm not disagreeing with them in their context, but for my people, that's dangerous. And what that does is that repels the wrong people. No professional salesperson, unless they're very open to doing things differently. And there are exceptions and I actually attract them. But the folks who want to be very by the book traditional, here's how we've always done things, therefore we're always gonna do it this way, they don't come near me. They troll me in the comments, right? But they don't come near me in terms of working with me. But the folks who the folks who who agree with my approach, right, agree that 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 stuff's not gonna work for them, they're drawn closer. I, I, that's a that's an amazing story, and I love that they troll you in the comments. <laughs> I, I tell you, so I I used to I, I I live and breathe. I run on emotion, a hundred percent. I hundred percent. I'm getting sick of saying a hundred percent. It's my word of the day. It's like the Sesame Street word, you know, the number. This this episode brought to you by the number one hundred. <laughs> um, I I wear my heart on my sleeve, and. Early on, when I started posting stuff on LinkedIn regularly, I, you know, I'd say some things that are different and I'd get people trolling and get people and it it would eat me up. Oh, it would eat me up. Now I love it. I love it because if I can get an emotional response from someone, that means that I'm on a good track. Even if it's a, even if it's a poor response, even if it's an angry or a trolling response, it's an emotional response. And the other thing to think about from uh, – and this is helping people to take this approach. When you put something out there and someone doesn't like it and they comment 
and it's a negative comment. They are proliferating your message. They are sharing that with their with with their connections. When when you start and engage and engage with the people say don't feed the trolls. I feed the trolls all the time <laughs> because I, now the key you have to stay zen. You can't get emotional with the trolls, but if you can continue, stick to your line, stick to your brand, and and have a discussion, even if that discussion becomes goes kind of off the rails on one side, you're you're proliferating your message. You're getting it out further. People will come see that. That's a great thing. Well, here's how I look at it. In every industry, there's fault lines, right? And there's there's issues. The people they just fall on one side or the other. They're very polarizing issues, and human nature, right, um, would would dictate that we stay away from those issues because we don't want to upset, we don't want to offend, we want to be liked, right? But from a business perspective, that's where you want to go. You want to oh, know yeah. where those fault lines are and dig into them as much as possible. Well, absolutely, because would you rather be liked by everybody where where that everybody is not really buying you and not really into you, or would you rather be loved by a select few who want everything that you sell and love everything you do? And yes, give me more. Here's my money. Take it, please. Yep. Bingo. So where does that leave us? We want to be clear. We want to be compelling and we want to be convincing. Convincing. Tell us about that. Convincing. So convincing is this persuasion. This is Traditionally, you're selling something, you want to persuade someone to buy it, right? I mean, so to be convincing, you have to be convincing to be perfectly understood or else you're not going to motivate your audience to do anything. If you're clear and you're compelling, but you're not convincing someone to take action, then what's the end result? If you want people to buy your service, it's about being convincing. So convincing to me is about knowing your audience. I've been saying be your audience lately, but I, we were talking about this before. It's, it's largely more of a, a marketing thing for me, I guess. But be your audience. Be your audience. Put on that lens. Put on those shoes and walk around. This is, ties back into personas. We were talking about personas earlier. Yeah, it's it's no longer good enough to just do persona research and and okay, I know that that my my main uh, my main prospects financial services firm and it's uh, you know a C a C E a C O O at a financial services firm. And I know that traditionally this is 78% men and I know that it's, you know, we're going to call him Bob and Bob cares about metrics and Bob cares about KPIs and Bob cares about, you know, it, it, that, that's not what I'm talking about. It's if you're going to be your audience, then it's hanging out with Bob. It's and maybe that's literal. Maybe it's, hey, let's go hang out with a bunch of my audience at a show, at a trade show, at a conference, at a networking event, whatever. But it's also understanding, OK, what's what are what's my audience reading? What are they reading online? Where are they online? What are they engaging with online? There's always something. And it may be personal. It may not be a work thing. That's OK. I want to know, understand my audience as well as my audience understands themselves. If I'm operating on that level and I understand their pains, 
professional pains. I know their personal goals and challenges. I know what they're about. Excuse me. If I know what they're about, then of course, the way that I speak to them is going to be convincing. I'm going to put forth that layer of trust immediately with my words because I'm using their words because I'm a part of it. That's the most powerful way to be convincing. All of the tactics that you hear about with persuasion, um, you know, make this button red or not red, make this button green and this many, you know, this point size or use contrast in your messaging. What is, what could versus what could be. These are all good things, but on their own, they're just tactics. The key to this is foundation, this foundational layer of knowing and being your audience. That's how you can be most convincing. So that's a massive, massive shift for people. Let's yeah. spend a little bit more time oh, talking yeah. about be your audience, because I appreciate what you're saying. A majority of marketing persuasion advice is understand your audience, empathize with them even, try to see the world from their perspective. You're saying be your audience. And, I, and I, I'm reminded of a lesson that we share with our clients, and it's in a sales conversation. As early as possible, get on, get on their side of the table, right? Get on their side of the table, mm -hmm. get on their team. And the idea is that, look, if I'm a consultant, I'm bringing an initiative to the table, right? Well, what if it was somebody on your team who brought that initiative to the table? I think we can agree that that person on your team would have to be far less persuasive then you would need to be as an external consultant because they're on your team. You're on the same side. You're working towards a common goal, right? So the earlier that you as a consultant, service provider, external advisor can get yourself onto their side of the table, the better. Now, the way that I would apply what you're saying to marketing for, for you know, consultant service providers is this. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Be concerned about pursuing the issues and the challenges that they're concerned about. Be concerned yes. about exploring those issues and challenges. So if your yeah. people care about, give me a quick example. I got a client who, who advises CIOs on how to negotiate with technology vendors, right? He's on their side of the table. Their concern is beating up Microsoft, beating up Oracle, beating up SAP and negotiating with them. So the more that he furthers those those issues and those concerns and those challenges and talks about them, the more they're going to he's going to get their attention. But also they're going to see him as being on their side of the table. Their side. Yeah, this is great. I love this. So for me, when I sell, I don't really sell. I was uncomfortable with it. And I was uncomfortable with it because the traditional view of selling is adversarial. It's me versus you. We're negotiating. We're coming to an agreement. If we have to come to an agreement, that means that we're, we're opposed at some point. And, um, wow, that was weird. Did you, uh, do you still see me? I still see you. Yeah. Okay, good. You, my little, my little window just, I went like this and my little window went to you. So now I see you and I see you in my window. Magic. Right, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, so it's, it's adversarial. It's, it's, it's opposed. When I sell, you either want to work with me or you don't. It's not adversarial. It's us. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm becoming 
my audience. I understand the challenges that they face. And I, to the point where it's even one-to-one and as a, as a service provider, as a consultant, it's important to do those things that traditionally don't scale. It's so important. It's, it's understand your audience, your audience, fine. You might, it might be 10 people. It might be a hundred people. It might be who knows how many people, but it's not going to be that many that I can't understand individuals and get, understand their challenges, understands their, their likes and their dislikes, and then internalize it. So be your audience. It's, it's nuanced, right? All those things we're talking about with understand your, your audience, be empathetic, understand their words, know what they read and all that stuff. Being your audience is, is that next layer down. It's, as you say, it's becoming part of their team. Mm. No, this is fascinating, important, and I really hope people are paying attention because this is really where the battles won or lost. So, Zach, we got to wrap up here. We could go all day. Um, unfortunately, we don't have all day. So I want to <laughs> thank you for your time and also let us know where can people look you up and learn more from you. Sure. So a couple different places. Uh, you can find me at ZachMessler.com. You can look me up on LinkedIn, Zach Messler. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. Um, I, I dig it there. Uh, and then you can email me if you'd like at Zach at ZachMessler.com. Awesome. We'll drop links to all of those in the show notes. Zach, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.